Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson. The Moth is true stories told live in front of an audience. The stories come from all sorts of people, talking about all stages of life, from children reckoning with their identities to grown people still working on finding themselves. Our first story comes from early in our archive. The year was 2000. And when Lauren Slater took the stage, most of us already knew something about her. She had a best-selling book, Prozac Diary, and everyone was talking about it. Here's Lauren Slater at a show in New York City. It was, um, I remember it was a Thursday night, and it was about midnight, and I went into the kitchen to take my drugs, um, which I've been taking for many, many years, probably 14 years for, lo and behold, depression, um, and its little partner, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and just as I was tapping them into my palm, my fiancé of the time sort of darted by me and darted downstairs into the basement. And I said, honey, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to my lab. Because he's a chemist and he has a lab. He had, I should say, a lab in the basement. So he went downstairs to the basement and I tapped the four 80 milligrams of Prozac into my palm and, and, uh, and took them with water. And just as I was probably downing about the last one I heard from the basement, this blood-curdling scream. Um, and I am actually a person, even though I, like, I look like, you know, with a frill and everything, like I look like I'm fairly sheltered. Um, I'm a person who's heard a fair number of screams in her life. Um, I'm a therapist, and I'm also a, a veteran of mental hospitals, so I've heard a lot of screams. And, and this one... Um, this one was definitely was a scream to top all screams, and I couldn't—I seriously could not imagine what what was what this could be. The only thing I could think was that someone had somehow climbed in the basement window and was murdering my fiance. Although that seemed unlikely because the basement window was so small. But in any case, <laughs> I ran downstairs really, really fast, and I flung open the door to his lab, and um, he was standing there, and he was just ringed in fire. Um, he, uh, he, he had, I should say, really long, beautiful, strawberry blonde hair, and that was the thing that I remember the most, was that it was just, it was just, you know, like this Medusa-like flames around his head, and all, his whole body was just fringed with fire, and I stood there, and I know that this, this happened really fast, but in my mind, this moment slowed down, and I stood there, just for a second, but it seemed like for a long time, and I remember thinking, this is the oddest thing that just two minutes ago I was a woman who was engaged to be married and who had had some significant difficulties in her life but had more or less overcome them, and now all of a sudden my whole life narrative is going to change, and I'm going to be a woman who from this point on will say that she watched her lover burn to death in a fire, and how strange that that would suddenly become a plot point in my life. Um, 
And I remember thinking that, and then I, and then the moment passed, and I, I ran forward, and just as I did that, he was holding a beaker in his hand. Um, the fire was some chemical that had should never have touched air, and because air got into it, it spontaneously combusted. And um, he dropped the beaker, and he started like patting the fire out, even though his hands were also on fire. He he was patting. He just stamped it out all over his body, and then. Um, but it, the, a chemical fire is different from, at least from what I saw, a chemical fire is different from a normal fire in that this, this fire, as soon as it was out of his body and he was now no longer on fire, it, was, it started leaping and like skipping around the room and his, this lab was just packed with chemicals that should not have been in the house. I mean, they were just, it was just packed with toxic combustible chemicals. And I pulled him out of the lab and I was like, come on, we gotta go, we gotta go, the house is gonna blow up, we gotta go now. And, it, and he kept running back into the lab. Um, and finally, there was a sort of strange tug of war between us, and then he managed to get back into the lab, and he took this fire extinguisher that I guess he obviously had there for just this sort of event, um, and he was going, shit, 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 he couldn't figure out how to work it, and then he figured out how to work it, and the fire extinguisher, like, and the whole room went up in, like, white, this white, like, foam with this rancid stink. And we ran upstairs, and his, his hair was gone, his eyelashes were gone, his skin was bubbling, and I was like, I love you, I love you, I love you. I ran to the freezer and I started throwing like whatever I could, any like ice cubes, Tropicana cans, whatever, just to, uh, throwing them at him. And I just kept saying, I love you, I love you. And he's like chemist to the very end. He was like, Lauren, just stay calm. Go to the CVS and get me zinc oxide and aloe vera and bandages. So I went to the CVS and I got him this stuff and it was in the car that like his screams just kept going in my head. It wasn't even the sight of him on fire, it was his screams. Um, and we, I came back and the next day we went, we went, soon after that we went to the emergency room and he had some scarring on his eardrum but he was pronounced basically hairless but okay. Um, <laughs> But the thing was that I wasn't okay after that because I kept hearing his screams and I kept thinking what, you know, more than the sight of him, it was those, it was the vision, it was the sound of him. And it, I kept thinking I agreed to marry this man. And when you agree to marry someone, you, you agree to a degree of intimacy um, that includes all kinds of intimate sounds. But this was a sound that I did not agree to ever hear. And this was the sound of like the cortex being peeled back in like pure limbic terror. I knew what he would sound like at the moment of death. And I did not want that knowledge of him. And I did not know if I could marry him with that knowledge. And what basically happened is that I became depressed and our relationship became depressed. Um, I'd always thought that, a, that depression was something that happens just to an individual, but from this experience, I learned that it can happen. Depression can be the third variable. It can happen between people. Um, we had you know, all the diagnostic criteria. We had the neurovegetative symptoms. We had psychomotor retardation. We stopped having sex. Our appetites in all sorts of ways fell off. And I remember thinking, I really, really don't know if I can marry this man because his screams kept replaying in my head. And I didn't know how I would ever integrate that with the rest of him or with our relationship. Now it's about four or five years later. And and I am, you've, actually my ring kind of fell off, my ring fell off, but I am in fact married to <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I think, I've been thinking like, what was it that enabled me to move beyond those screams and move beyond that knowledge of him and move beyond the depression that existed between us? And 
I don't have any grand answers, but I do have some sort of clues, and one of them is just simply time. As time went on, lo and behold, his screams started to sort of fade in my mind. Um, and I was able to sort of put them in a different place in my brain. And also as time went on, I was able to start remembering the event a little bit differently. And this is something that is interesting in depression. When you're depressed, you will look at your past and see it in one way. And as the depression starts to lift, you maybe look at your past or look at past events and see them in another way. And whereas while we were depressed, I had thought, this guy is just such a loser. He's such a goon. I can't believe he almost blew up our house. I started thinking, I started remembering, well, he had got the fire extinguisher. He did figure out how to work it in a crisis. And like, that's something I never would have been able to do. And I started to sort of see him as being potentially competent again, where I hadn't seen him that way before. Um, and the other thing that happened was I went to a writer's conference, and this was the first time we'd been away from each other in a while, and I got really, really drunk at this writer's conference. And there was all these famous writers there, like Susan Orlean and Gore Vidal, and like the, some, it wasn't Janet Maslin, but it was some like really serious <laughs> higher up at the New York Times. And I got, <laughs> I got really, really drunk, and I, and I told them the whole story of the fire, like at this, at this conference, at this dinner. And they were all like, don't, and I said, should I marry him? And they were all like, don't, definitely do not marry this guy. This is a mistake. <laughs> um, except Gore Vidal <laughs> said I should marry him. Um, and if Gore Vidal says you should marry someone, then you should marry them. That was what I thought. Um, so I came back, and we decided that we were, in fact, going to go ahead and get married. And Benjamin said, given everything that we've been through, the kind of wedding I propose is that we have a naked wedding. And... You know, I said, that's just, that's not going to happen. That's definitely not going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, you blew up the house, you're not going to get a naked wedding. And he said, he said, it's really important, given the descent and the ascent and the symbolism of all this, that we have a naked wedding. And this is one thing that I really, really want. Um, so I said, if you really, really want a naked wedding, you can have your naked wedding. I'm wearing a towel. Um, <laughs> So he said, all right, you wear a towel, but everybody who comes has to be naked too. And I said, there's no way that my friends, who are all writers and have significant neuroses and anxieties, there's no way that my friends are going to come to our wedding and be naked, and you can't force them to do that. Um, and he said, well, all right, it's, it's voluntary, whatever. But um, in any case, the, the, day, the day before the wedding, like this kind of strange giddiness came over me. It's a giddiness that I liken sometimes to what happens when a depression is lifted, and you're like, whoa, life, here it is. And I decided I went to a tattoo parlor, and I got this, this belt tattooed around my waist of all of his favorite molecules, um, <laughs> including the molecular structure of fire. And I thought I was... I was thinner at the time, and I thought, this, this tattoo belt looks really awesome on me. Maybe I should go naked. Um, and, but I still was up in the air about it. So anyway, the day of the wedding comes. He's in a bathrobe. I'm in a bathrobe. Our friends come over. And the weirdest thing, oh, he hired two witches to officiate this ceremony, although they were also, they were also like, legal. they could legally marry us. But um, so the witches come. All my writer friends come, you know, they've got, you know, all kinds of aches and pains and are just, what are just not the type to go naked. And the weirdest thing is that his friends all went naked. And the strange hush came over the house, and I swear to God, this is true, my friends all dropped trout. They all went naked. His parents went naked. Um, 
and then it was time for us. We came downstairs. We walked down the stairs. I was he. We were both in a bath in bathrobes, and uh, he took off his bathrobe, and then I took off my bathrobe, and I was naked. And we got married that way. Um, but I wasn't facing the crowd. I was facing away from the crowd. So it was only my back. Um, and then at the end, these witches who were pierced like all over said, um, you know, in order to con fully consummate your wedding, you now need to turn around and face the crowd, which is something that having a large chest, I was like, that was just totally something I didn't think that I could do. But I did. We both turned around and we faced the crowd. And I was just like, here I am. And it was this, this moment when we were like, when we were, you know, completely bare and silly and scared and strong and all of those things together. Um, and it was at, at that moment that, you know, we said, I do in sickness and in health for better and for worse. And that's the end. Thank you. That was Lauren Slater. She's a psychologist and a writer with many books and many awards to her credit. In the years since she told that story, lots of updates. The fire and the wedding, those are just a few chapters in her unique and complicated life. I couldn't possibly synopsize all that's happened. So if you want to find out more, follow the link at themoth.org. P.S. Wedding planners, take note. The naked wedding thing? You could save a lot of money. No dresses, no tuxes, and really no place to pin a corsage. As you're listening, maybe you're thinking of your own unique and life-changing story. Maybe you want to share it with us at The Moth. Call our pitch line. It'll prompt you to leave a two-minute version of the story. The number is 877-799-MOTH. Or you can pitch us a story right at our website, themoth.org. My name is Roy Marcus. I'm almost 60 years old, but the story begins when I'm six. My mother is an artist and loves encouraging my own abilities. She suggests I draw a picture of President Lincoln, which I do, and we send it to President Kennedy for Lincoln's birthday. Two years later, it is the 47th birthday of JFK, one he never got to see, the first after the assassination, and school children are asked to help the initial fundraising for his presidential library. We are told that it will preserve all of his papers, all of his letters, and I think of my drawing. I run a lemonade stand that Memorial Day weekend, and I send the proceeds to help things along. In November 1992, the day after Bill Clinton is elected president, I am in Boston on business, but steal an hour to finally get to the JFK library. I give my name to a docent and ask if they by chance have my letter. A moment later, I get invited to a research floor and am asked if I'd like to look at the Crayola drawing the museum has carefully been preserving for almost 30 years. Somehow, the six-year-old who drew it answers, boy, oh boy, would I. Remember, you can pitch us at 877-799-MOTH or online at themoth.org, where you can also share these stories or others from the Moth Archive right through our website by using the Moth app, which is now available for iOS or Android. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at The Moth. When we come back, we're going to take you to Kingston, Jamaica, through the eyes of an eight-year-old boy. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. 
This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. Our next story comes from a main stage show in Boston, where we partnered with public radio station WBUR. Remember when you were eight and there was something, a special toy, a gadget, a jacket, or something that you just had to have, like, at any cost? For writer Colin Channer, it was a book, but not just any book. Here's Colin Channer live in Boston at the Schubert Theater. When I was eight years old, I got involved with a 42-year-old woman. This was 1971 in Jamaica. One day, I was at primary school, and a guy had gone to Miami, and he came back, and he told us a story of something he'd seen in a Walgreens. His description was, it's a combination of a comic book, a magazine, and a book book, the Superman Annual. I'd never heard of an annual comic book. I'd never seen a comic book that was bigger than about 20 pages. So I decided I had to see one, which meant going to the biggest bookstore in Jamaica, Sangsters. My mother was very strict. My father was already gone, wasn't yet dead. He was a cop. He was scared of my mother, who was a pharmacist. My brother and I were scared of her, too. So every Saturday, she would take us to these drawing classes in downtown Kingston, which sort of looks like uh, an old southern town with these buildings with these uh, pitch roofs. And we'd go to art class. And there was 15 minutes between when, she, when we left and when she picked us up. Sangster's Books, biggest bookstore in Jamaica, five minutes run around the corner. I told my brother, I'm going inside to the bathroom. I'm coming back before mommy comes. My brother, his name is Gary, he wanted to be a priest, or so he would say, to be considered innocent. I wanted to be an astronaut, how practical. So I ran around to Sangsters, and in those days in Jamaica, you still had mule carts, and you had cars, and you had reggae playing everywhere, and I run into the bookstore, and it's strange to me, because it's cold, it was air-conditioned. And I hugged myself, wow. And then I look up, and 10 steps in front of me at a cash register was a woman in a blue polyester suit. She was a color of strong tea, and her hair was like broccoli. (laughs) No hot comb could cut through that. So I said to her, excuse me, miss, is there something here called a Superman annual? And she says, yes. And she told me where it was. And then I went around to the, where it was on the shelf, and there was a big sign above it that said, no reading allowed. So I skimmed through it. It was the size of a family Bible. Heavy. It had a hard cover. There were interviews with the people who drew the Superman comics. There were other storylines that we'd never seen before. And there was about a whole year's worth of Superman comics in one book. I ran back to art class, (sighs) made it. I started going every week. I became friendly with the cashier. I would go in, hi, and she'd go, hello, (laughs) until she started sending a clerk to guard me while I read the Superman annual under the no reading aloud sign. So one weekend, I didn't go to art class. I didn't get to see the Superman annual, didn't get to see my lady friend. And I was thinking about her, but how nice she was, and how different she was from my mother. 
And as I started thinking about how nice she was, I felt obligated to be nice to her. And as I started feeling obligated to be nice to her, well, my eight-year-old mind started connecting something, which is, I want the book. If I ask my mother for the money to buy the book, she will say, no, I'm a single mother. But if I had a friend who worked in the store, then maybe I could get her to like me in a special way. <laughs> and maybe we could work something out. <laughs> so when I got back to Sangster's the next time and I walked in the store and I hugged myself, she hugged herself long. I said, hi. She said, little friend, what happened to you? I didn't see you last week. I said, well, you know, and I began to improvise. Well, I was out with my mother, you know, and we were shopping and, you know, I like to help my mother a lot. So that's why I didn't come. We said, you're a nice little boy. I went around the corner, ran back to art school, made it. Next week, I would steal the book. And I made a plan, a good plan, a wicked plan. I used to like watching The Saint with Simon Templer. I used to like watching It Takes a Thief with Robert Wagner, Alexander Monday. America made this. So <laughs> I went in the store the next week, ran inside, did not hug myself. I just ran up to her and said, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what happened. I was out shopping with mommy like last week and the bag broke. You have a bag you could give me? And she said, little friend, of course and gives me a bag. And I run out the front entrance, and I walk around the back way, coming through the back entrance, with the bag under my shirt, pull it out, Superman Annual was there, take it, drop it, Hulk Annual was there too, <laughs> Spider-Man was there as well, and why should a superhero be alone? So I walked out, nice and easy, perfect heist. Then I got back to art school, and my brother, the priest, was there. <laughs> what you have in the bag? Now, when your brother is 12, and he wants to be a priest, and anything he says is believed, and you want to be an astronaut, and anything you say is otherworldly, <laughs> you get defensive. So there was only one answer. None of your damn business. <laughs> and he asked me again, and I said, none of your beeswax. And then my mother came. We got in the car. Blue Ford Escort. My brother says, Mommy, Colin have books from Sangsters. And my mother stops the car. She looks at me. Where you get money to buy books from? Well, it's not books, mommy, it's comics. Well, where you get the money to buy the comics from? And I experienced early onset prepubescent amnesia because at eight, <laughs> I, I couldn't remember. Um, that time when um, um, Uncle Cody came and he gave me the money that time. You beg Uncle Cody for money. You're begging people money because you think you have no father. Why is it nobody ever believes me when I say anything? 
you thief the books. Now in Jamaica, you don't steal, you thief. And you don't thief, you thief. <laughs> you thief the books. No, mommy, I did not thief the books. Show me the receipt. Okay, will that make you happy? I rummage around. I must be drop it. <laughs> I'm going to drive you back to Sangsters. Better tell me the truth now. Don't shame me in front of people. There was a simple calculus. When you're in the back seat of a two-door car, in 1971, in Jamaica, where parents can do anything they want, in any fashion, for however long, you say, let's go to the store. Because in the store, you'll have witnesses who are not in the family. So we get there. My mother walks in. She does not hug herself. We come in, and my mother says, which cashier you buy it from? The amnesia. Again, um, I think it was, I can't remember. And I see my lady friend observing all this. And I am the fortunate son. That one mommy. We walk up to her. This boy here said he bought three books from you. Superman, Spider-Man, and another one. <laughs> you remember him buying anything from you? I looked at my lady friend. My lady friend looked at me. We had a connection. And she looked at my mother, and she looked back at me, and she said words I will never forget. Little friend, I am so disappointed. And I learned the power of shame. Years later, when my second book came out, I got a letter from Sangster's Books. They were opening a new store in Kingston, and they would like me to come <laughs> to do a reading there. And when I went to the store, all the memories of that heist came back. But also a real connection of what it means to be disciplined in different ways. There was a discipline of my mother, the discipline of force. And then there was a discipline of someone saying, in her own way, I know you can do better, do better. And I never stole books again. That was Colin Channer. Eventually, Colin got himself a library card and left his life of crime behind. Colin's a writer, poet, and professor, father of two kids, yoga person, and for a time, the bass player for a Brooklyn-based reggae band. Sangster's bookstores are still alive and well in Jamaica. Colin has read and signed books at several of their locations. He always hopes he'll see his old friend, but so far, no luck. And when you're poor, you can't sleep. Ask me about Brooklyn, where every day you know the bikes that does. Choose so much gunshot a bus. Just ask me about Jamaica, where life is getting on. 
Our next story also features some powerful women. It's from a Grand Slam in New Orleans, where we partner with public radio station WWNO. Here's Aubrey Edwards with a tale of two grandmas. Thank you. So I started rebelling at a young age, like a very young age. You see, I was born into and raised within an extremely conservative and Christian household. Like some real footloose shit, right? So there was no dancing, no makeup, no jewelry, vegetarianism, modest dress. We couldn't watch TV on the Sabbath. So it was 1985, and I was six years old, and I was over it. (laughs) So I started practicing little acts of civil disobedience. I would strap oak leaves to my feet, bounded by rubber bands, instead of putting on my church shoes. (laughs) I would engage in ferocious debates as to why I should be able to watch the 1981 Greek mythology cult classic, Clash of the Titans, on the Sabbath because it was about gods. But my peace day resistance came when I was dropped off for school. And before I went to class in the first grade, I snuck into the bathroom and I changed into a t-shirt that I'd cut the neck out of. And I slung it low. And I put on a bow in my hair. And I put jelly bracelets all the way up to my elbows that I had borrowed from the bad girl on the block. And I sauntered into class and I was immediately sent home. And it was at this time that my grandmothers decided to intervene. Because you see, they saw a little bit of them in a little bitty Aubrey. Now they didn't know each other and they lived in different cities, but separately and respectively, they decided to create the sanctuary where my wild spirit could roam free because they had been wild. They didn't abide by rules, and they did not abide by convention. So my Nana, she had been a flapper, and she brewed whiskey during Prohibition. (laughs) And my Grandma Hall, she was a fucking boxer. (laughs) And she was voted the most beautiful divorcee of Los Angeles, 1948. And she accepted that award with three children from three different husbands in tow. And they took me under their wing. And I remember that first day that my parents dropped me off to my Nana's house. And she said, come here. And she took me back to a dresser drawer and she said, open it. And I pulled it open and it was like a portal into another world. And inside, a dozen polyester handmade bikinis and chunks of costume jewelry. And from then on out, every weekend that my parents dropped me off, she and I would gingerly wave goodbye, and as soon as they were down the street, she'd say, go. (laughs) And I would strip down, and I would put on my outfit, and I would run to her backyard, and we would turn on her sprinklers full blast, and I would dance for hours underneath the Southern California sun and the orange trees. And when I went to my grandma Hall's house with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and a 40 of old English in her hand, 
she would slip me some brandy-filled chocolates, a pair of high heels, fire engine red lipstick, and a Walkman. And I would listen to When the Doves Cry. <laughs> On repeat, rewinding over and over, singing at the top of my lungs. And she would scream, Aubrey, your mother's on her way. And I would run in and we would scrub the makeup off of my face and I would put on my knee-length skirt and I would sit on the couch and I would wait. And it was that same year that my mother's breast cancer returned and it was unforgiving. So while my mother was dying, my grandmothers were teaching me how to be alive without concern for judgment, and living unencumbered. Because, my Nana would say, life is too short. And because, my Grandma Hall would say, life is too long, so live free. And it was those two women who laid the groundwork and set the trajectory for how I would continue to live the rest of my life. So anytime I have just a moment of second guessing the decisions that I've made in my life, or I have a hint of regret, I take a moment and I think back to that year and this flash of memory where I'm surrounded by citrus trees and I'm looking over my shoulder through these wet tendrils of long hair, and I catch that gaze of my Nana in her kitchen window, and she has a huge smile on her face. And I focus forward, and I go dance. Thank you. Aubrey Edwards is a photographer, visual anthropologist, and educator who lives with her family in New Orleans. She loves wild things and rehabilitates injured birds and then sets them free. And she still loves to dance. Next up, when the school calls a meeting about his kindergartner, a father prepares to do battle. When the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. We met our final storyteller at the Denver Story Slam, where we partner with KUNC. Chris Gilbert is an attorney and the father of three, and we flew him to New York City to tell this story. Here's Chris Gilbert. About six months into my middle child's uh, kindergarten year, we got a call from the school uh, wanting to have a meeting. And uh, my wife and I kind of had an idea of, of what it was about, but we didn't really think the school did. Um, 
all that the teacher said was, Amelia hasn't been herself lately. And the meeting was scheduled for about two weeks out, um, leaving me with plenty of time to worry about everything that was going to happen. And that's exactly what I did. Let me tell you a little bit about Amelia. Um, around age four, my wife and I had figured out that Amelia uh, didn't like the things we typically associate with girls. Um, we couldn't get her in a dress. I, uh, I have no recollection in her life of her ever wearing a dress. Um, and she didn't do girl things. Um, in the summer before she started kindergarten, my mother-in-law gave her her first boy haircut. Uh, and she dressed like her older brother. And, and, and that's what I thought. I thought that she was just emulating her older brother because that's what she knew. And that it was just a phase at, that I was okay with. Uh, let her like what she liked, be who she was going to be, and however it turned out was going to be fine. What I learned, though, was that Brody, or Amelia, rather, um, had gone to kindergarten and told children in her class that her name was really Brody and that uh, she was really a boy and that she had said things to my wife like, God made a mistake and can you take me to God so he can put me in the right body? Concepts that to me, no four or five year old should ever be able to verbalize. And not only did it concern me, it scared me a lot. We went to see a counselor that specializes in children who feel like Amelia. And after several sessions, the counselor says to us, yeah, um, Amelia's got what we call gender dysmorphia. And um, you don't have to do anything about it right now. You can ride it out and see where it goes. And that was perfect for me. Um, I really like the solution of doing nothing for the time being. <laughs> um, but school called um, and, and wanted to have this meeting. And part of me, um, in this immense need I had to protect my child, I uh, didn't want to discuss it with school. I didn't want them to know uh, what was really going on with her. But after we talked about it some, my wife and I, and we talked to Amelia about it and more discussions with the counselor, we accepted him as Brody. And to us, he was Brody. And at home, he was Brody. And to his siblings, he was Brody. And we were going to let him be Brody um, and, and uh, just let it unfold how it may. In the interim, though, um, I had a lot of distress around this. On the list of things I expected to encounter as a parent, uh, this never made that list. And I didn't know other similarly situated parents that I could talk to. Um, this was one of the things that, that I really felt I was going to have to figure out for myself, and I didn't know where to start. 
On the day that I got notice of the meeting, um, I was on my way to the mountains to go skiing with my friend Annie for the day. And I wanted to talk to my wife more about the meeting schedule, but she was busy at work and couldn't take my call, so I called my youngest sister and told her what was going on, and I sobbed. I, I wept and, and had trouble getting my words out to her, and she listened, and I believe that she did her best to empathize, but she told me she didn't have anything to tell me, that she had no idea what it was like to be in my shoes. Um, and, and she listened, but couldn't provide comfort. And I finally got to the mountain. I pulled myself together and I went out and caught up with Annie. And when we finally ended up on the ski lift alone, uh, I told Annie what was going on and told her about Brody and told her about the meeting and shared with her a little bit um, of, of my fear surrounding how things were going to go. And Annie just looked at me and said, so what? If he wants to be Brody, just let him be Brody. And the words were so simple, but it was the reaction that I needed, the feedback I needed from someone that wasn't in my family that didn't have a vested interest in their response to me that was so comforting, at least at that time. It, 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 was, it was pretty short-lived. Um, because in that two weeks leading up to the meeting, I played through every scenario, everything that was going to go wrong. As a lawyer, I get paid to assess worst-case scenarios for people. And in this case, I did it for myself pro bono. Um, <laughs> and probably better than I do it professionally. Um, and so with all the anxiety that I had built up inside myself and, and, and all this fear, I was ready to go in and fight at this meeting. I, I was convinced uh, that it was going to be battle and I prepared for such. And on the day the meeting came, my wife and I walked in to the kindergarten classroom. We were the first two in the room, and I see on the far wall, furthest away from the door, the two little plastic kindergartner chairs for my wife and I. And in front of us, a row of little plastic kindergartner chairs for faculty that were going to be in the meeting. And knowing I was going to have that between me and the door, I'd already started thinking um, who I was going to have to take out to, to escape. <laughs> At the very least, I, I was going to end up on the local news that night, um, likely the national news and probably the BBC. And as we sat there, it seemed like forever um, in the faculty started trickling in, first the teacher, and then the principal, and the guidance counselor, and the school nurse, and people from the after-school program. Um, and, and 
my threat assessment at that point had gone up a couple of levels and, and the teacher looked at us and with tears in her eyes said, tell us what you want us to do. You have a beautiful child and we are here to do whatever you need us to do. And for the next hour, we sat with the school folks and talked about how Brody would be Brody at school and how he would line up in the boys' line and how he would use the boys' bathroom. And it was easy. It was so easy. None of the things that I had feared, none of the things that I dreamt up came true at all. And what it told me was how lucky my wife and I were in this situation, not knowing what to do, me wrought with fear, to have Brody in a school where other people genuinely love him and care about him. The next day, Brody showed up for class and he walked in and his teacher introduced him as Brody. And when she did, one of the other kids said, hey, can we have a birthday party for him? In this process, on our, our journey, my wife and I have met a lot of other parents with transgender children. And it's not an easy road for them. I hear about their obstacles. I hear about their struggles. Even for the, the smallest, most benign things. And I feel guilty. I feel guilty that it's so easy for us. Just a few weeks ago, I filed for his name change. Um, and again, geared up for the fight. And I, I filed the pleading, and within a day and a half, no hearing, no nothing, the judge signs the order. That, that story is not typical. And so, one of the things that I know, though, as easy as it is for us, is that I need to be grateful. I need to be grateful for this journey being so effortless. And that doesn't mean that I don't worry about what's going to happen with him in the future. I can't do anything about that, but I still worry. What I know now, though, is that since the school meeting, Brody was not only his old self, but he's flourished. He's better than him, his own self, his old self. He, acknowledging that I have some bias in this, he is one of the most beautiful, kindest, most loving, most compassionate 
children that I've ever known. He plays on boys' sports teams and handily beats the boys he plays with and against. (laughs) But most importantly, my son is comfortable in his own skin. That was Chris Gilbert. These days, Chris and his wife are involved in a support group for the families of transgender kids because people just starting out really need to talk to other families. Actually, Chris fully admits it's mostly his wife who talks at these meetings, but on a practical level, Chris likes to lend a hand with the legal process of the name change. He said then the child can be officially recognized as the name that fits their gender everywhere. School, sports, passports. It's a small step that's really significant and can sometimes be difficult. An extra tidbit on that story and a testament to the power of sharing stories. Early on, back when Chris still thought his kid was maybe just a very dedicated tomboy, he found himself on a flight. There were two women in his row and they had a little dog with them and Chris was patting the dog and made chit chat and he asked the women what they did and they said they were PhDs from the University of Colorado and that their focus was on sexual orientation and gender issues in schools. And for the first time, Chris found himself saying out loud to a stranger, Well, I have a kid who's experiencing some of those feelings. Sometimes telling your story to a stranger is just what you need, and that's part of what keeps us going here at The Moth. That's it for this episode, and we hope you'll join us next time. Your host this hour was Jennifer Hickson. Jennifer also directed the stories in the show, along with Joey Zanders. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Jeunesse, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Mooj Zaidi and Timothy Lou Lee. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Most Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Stellwagen Symphonette, Morgan Heritage, Blue Cranes, and Bill Frizzell. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the public radio exchange PRX.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. 
Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.